day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider. Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of the kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Well, we are finishing up our series in Haggai this morning, and can I just say that I, I love the book of Haggai? Like, I don't know how many times you hear people say that, but uh, it's striking to me as I go through the scriptures, each book of the Bible, as I go through it, how I just fall in love with the character of God that's on display there. And I felt the same way about Haggai. Now, if you're just joining us, what I want to do is just catch you up to speed a little bit. So some of this will be uh, new for some of you, review for others, but I just want us on the same page as we move forward. Now, uh, we know that in this book, uh, that it was in 586 BC that Babylon destroyed Judah and the temple and then exiled all of the Jews uh, into Babylon. Now, this was a huge deal for Judah because the temple was central to their identity. Politically, ethnically, spiritually, uh, this place defined who they were. Uh, Jews made sacrifices in the temple for their sins so that they could draw near to their God. And and they also uh, saw this place as representing the throbbing center of their national identity as the people of God. And so here, the Jews struggled with a massive identity crisis for 50 years as they raised their kids in alien, as alien exiles in Babylon. Now, they were raised as foreigners amongst an unclean people. But God sent the Persian king Cyrus, who was also a foreigner, to defeat Babylon. And, and he told Cyrus to return the Jews to Jerusalem so that they could rebuild God's house and worship him there. Well, we know as the story goes along that an initial struggle caused a work stoppage. But by the time Haggai comes and speaks to them, their water break had turned into 16 years of disobedience. So God's people, they were distracted and they were discouraged. They were distracted by trying to, to really update their own homes, right? Putting granite in the kitchens, trying to get their houses set up before they moved on to care about God's house, and they just hadn't gotten around to it for 16 years. Well, not only were they distracted, they were discouraged. They were discouraged because they remembered the past glory of Solomon's temple and the resources they had. They remembered all of the potential that lay before them, and yet now all in shambles and rubble. It seemed hopeless, and they seemed unable and ill-equipped to be able to do what God had called them to do in rebuilding that temple to its former glory. To make things worse, they're led by Joshua and Zerubbabel, a priest without a temple and a king without a throne. But make no mistake, this book, it's not about bricks and mortar. That's not what this is about. It's about God awakening his people to himself. It is about a spiritual movement of God amongst God's people. 
And in chapter 1, God's Spirit revived them to work. And so they, they stopped the work stoppage, and they went to work. And now what we find is, is that they have been at work. And as Haggai wraps up this morning, we're going to see that what the Holy Spirit means is that change is possible. The Holy Spirit means change is possible. Now hang on and you'll see how that unfolds. It's not immediately clear. But the first way that we're going to see this, that we're going to get to this, is in verses 10 to 14. So look there again in chapter 2 of Haggai, verses 10 to 14. And what we find is, is that Haggai trying to ask a question with his people, and he's asking this question, is our, our work ruined by our sin? Is our work ruined by our sin? I mean, do we have any hope in doing what God's called us to do? Listen to here again to, to what God's word says, beginning in verse 10. It says, on the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone is unclean by contact with a dead body and touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. In verse 14, then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. What they offer there is unclean. Now, on the face of it, there's really no significance to that date of December 18th, 520 B.C., before Jesus. Uh, that we begin with this morning in verse 10. I mean, there's just, there's just no meaning or significance to this date. You'll remember other dates might have had significance, but this one doesn't seem to. And it's just two months after his last prophecy in the first part of chapter 2 of Haggai. Now, the prophet asked the people to go to the priest for a decision on what might sound like a, a little uh, cryptic riddle about meat touching other foods. So you might be thinking, well, is he worried about salmonella? Like, what's the deal with the meat? Almost sounds cryptic, like you don't have enough details to understand it. But friends, he's not worried about food food regulations and cleanliness in that sense. What he's concerned with is holiness and purity. That's what really Haggai wants to talk about as he ends this book. And and what he says is is holiness is, is what you need to be thinking about. Now, holiness, if you don't know, holiness means being consecrated to God, being devoted to his service. One commentator clarifies the situation being described by Haggai for us who might seem and feel far removed. He says, the consecrated meat taken from slain sacrificial animals is placed in the fold of a garment that subsequently comes into contact with another food or drink. And now the question becomes, in such circumstances, will the thing touched by the garment also be rendered holy? Now that's maybe hard to follow that chain of thought. So when I think of that, I think of it in terms of like six degrees of Kevin Bacon. You know what I'm talking about? So that's that deal, that game where you try to connect any person to Kevin Bacon through a series of relationships. How many does it take you to get there? You can do this with other people like the president. So for instance, I know somebody who knows President George, former President George Bush. Therefore, I kind of know George Bush, right? Well, it's kind of the same question he's asking about the meat. I mean, if the meat's holy and touches the garment that touches the food, then is that food also, therefore, by extension, 
holy? And the answer, of course, is no. It doesn't work that way. Now, that's exactly what he wants us to be thinking about in the context. He wants us to be thinking about the fact that holiness is not quite contagious like that. So the short answer to his question uh, is, you know, yes, it, that, that thing is, it's, no, it's not holy. But he's really just leading into a more pertinent question that he asks in verse 13. That, that's where he really is getting to the point. He says, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? In other words, is impurity transferable? And the answer there, of course, is yes. Uncleanliness is, is highly contagious in the Old Testament. So if you're in the Old Testament and you touch a dead body, uh, say you have someone that has died and you have to deal with the body, then you have to go through all kinds of rituals to purify yourself, to make yourself holy, so that you can then again worship God in the ways that you ought to. And so there are all kinds of duties that you have to do to get clean again. And so what Haggai does is in verse 14, he sums up his main point for Judah. And here's what he says. So it is with this people, this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so it is with every work of their hands. What they offer is unclean. What they offer is unclean. Do you you see that? I mean, just think about it. He's called them to work. And then he says, okay, as you go to work for a holy God, I just want to remind you that you're unclean. Thank you for the word of encouragement. But friends, do we, do we really see the gravity and do we sense the gravity of what God says here? He says that dirty people can't make clean things. Now, even more important is a question, how can sinful Judah build a, a temple for the holy God, right? I mean, that's in context what they're thinking through. And they're already at work. They've gotten back to work. And so maybe they're thinking, does it matter anymore? Now, just to help think through this, I, I had a friend Uh, who in seminary had a number of odd jobs. Uh, I mean, very odd jobs. They didn't necessarily fit together. So one of his jobs is he worked as a maintenance man in the campus, and they had this interesting plumbing system where everything uh, basically concentrated on this one pipe where they had this massive blade that spun around, and it would chop everything that came through the sewage up so that it could then go out into the sewage. Now, here's the problem. Sometimes that pipe got clogged. And who did you call when that pipe got clogged? You called my friend. And he came in and they had a real, you know, technical way of fixing this, a very technical tool. It's called a hand with a glove. And he would stick that hand in and he would have to like pull that stuff out. Can you imagine? I mean, I struggled to clean up after my dog. And this guy is like reaching in and pulling that stuff out. His other odd job was that he worked in the kitchen. Now... I am pretty sure that he always had to go through cleaning rituals to go from cleaning that up to actually preparing people's food, right? I'm hoping so. And so if you think about it, though, this is really a good illustration for the nature of the way that God views sin. See, sin is, it's a reality where we disobey God, and God says the result is is that we become both guilty and filthy before him. So in other words, there are results in us in the way that we respond and relate to God because of our sin. Uh, We are uh, guilty in the sense of the fact that we have sinned against the high creator God who made us and owns us. And he is good, and yet we have chosen to disobey him, not trusting that he is as good as he said he is, not trusting that his word is as trustworthy as it is. And as a result, that always leads to death and judgment. And so we are guilty before God. But it's not just that we're guilty 
The scriptures also teach that we are filthy, that we're unclean. So we are unclean before God spiritually. Uh, We need to be cleaned if we're going to come before this holy God. Now that's why if you look at Jews and the way that they worship God in the temple, uh, they had rituals for cleaning themselves, right? Washings before they could actually worship God. And they also had acts of worship in God where they would offer a sacrifice for their sins. Do you see it? Washings for the uncleanliness, sacrifices for the guilt, And and they had to do both to come into the presence of God and a holy and righteous God. Now, we might feel a little far removed from that. But I don't think that we're far from the feeling of the guilt and the filth of sin. And in here, uh, what we are being shown through Haggai, speaking to his people, is that there is a bigger issue that Judah needs to deal with. See, Judah was immersed in a deeply sinful, unclean Babylonian culture for nearly 50 years before God called them to rebuild the temple. And for the past 16 years, they've continued in their disobedience before God, failing to obey Him and His direct word to them until just recently when they repented of their actions. I'm guessing for them, sin felt a lot like water would feel to a fish. Just try to ask a fish to describe what water feels like. A fish can't talk because he wouldn't tell you. But if he did, it would be hard for him, right? It would be hard for a fish to explain. Why? Because he's always in water. He doesn't know anything different. And so in the same way, Judah had been immersed in sin and in many ways probably had lost sight of what holiness looked like and wondered if there was any way to get back. I bet uh, they were wondering to themselves, how can such a sin-stained people like us serve a holy God? I mean, we're so far off the reservation that there's no way back. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you feel so dirty because of past sins from a decade ago or last night. And you fear that you've charted some new path for your life, for yourself. That you have started to write an identity for yourself that cannot be washed away or changed. That you are going to be defined by by what you have done in such a way that it cannot be new or different. And there's no hope for the future And you're thinking all is lost? I mean, how can you serve a holy God with with your filthy hands? Maybe you feel that way this morning. Your identity is so wrapped up in those past failures. And you feel ruined before God. You don't feel like something that God is going to choose to use. And so is there hope for you? Is there hope for me? You know, maybe you're, you're just asking yourself this question in your mind over and over again. Could a holy God love a guy or a gal like me? Well, it's like a young man I shared uh, the gospel with recently who, who responded, you know, I just can't believe that God could love someone like me if he really knew me. And maybe that's you, and maybe you haven't told people that, but that's really the main question that resides between you and God. Is there really hope for change for you. But friends, let me just tell you this morning that there is good news in the book of Haggai for sinners who have sin-stained consciences and sin-stained lives. There is hope for you. There is a future for you. There is gospel change that is possible. But before we get there, we need to ask a really important question. We need to ask what kind of change we're looking for. Change is possible, but what kind of change are we looking for in verses 15 to 19? Look there again with me. In chapters uh, 2, verses 15 to 19, I want want you to hear the way that Haggai begins to unfold the hope. It's interesting. He begins in verse 15, and he, he says this. 
It says in verse 15, Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight, and with mildew and with hail, and yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Now, here's what's fascinating. I, I told you that date, December 18, 520 B.C., that Haggai led with. It didn't seem to mean anything, but you know what? I, I think that it might not have meant much before, but God tells Judah to mark it on their calendars from here on out as the beginning of a new day. Do, do you see this? From this day on, there's, there's something that has changed. Now, what's interesting here is that he begins with their lives before the change. So in other words, he doesn't forget the sinful past. He highlights it. And he says, look, this is where you were. And I don't want to ignore it. Let's talk about the back history behind your daily labors for the past 16 years. I'm going to tell you the hope. But first, let's review what's happened in, his, in history. And notice that their, their, circul- their secular work, according to this text, the work that they do, that may not seem like God's work, isn't divorced from their relationship with God. Like even in the Old Testament. This is your daily jobs, completely connected to who God is. We don't have time to dwell there, but interesting point. But they've received the Underachiever Award every year for 16 years. Just think about that. I mean, this was not a slow, like, um, this was not a quick experience, and then they learned the lesson. For 16 years, every year they went to the party where they handed out, you know, awards for various achievements. You know, Bill was the guy who, like, had most sales. You know, the most productive was John. And then, of course, there was Judah, who once again completely underachieved. Thank you, Judah. 16 years of this, going and looking at their work and seeing that they had underproduced. They planted for 20 measures and got 10. And all of their wine vats seemed to be empty because apparently they had some kind of leak. They always got less than half of what they expected. One year, it was the flood. Another, it was the drought. And they never forgot, don't ever forget those locusts. I mean, there was always an excuse for the reasons that things had gone wrong, an excuse that they could see with their eyes. There was always a reason that they could see with their eyes, but they never considered the more important cause. And don't miss this. The more important cause, according to Haggai, and according to the Lord, is their sin before God. Do you see that? Sin before God caused their work and industry to be uh, less than profitable. Now, it reminds me of one of my favorite cartoons. Uh, I like cartoons. Um, I have three little boys. We watch lots of cartoons. And I used to love growing up watching Wally Coyote and the Roadrunner. Anybody watch that? Is that just me? Okay. Uh, more than we have teachers and students. And so we've got Wiley Roadrunner, right? Wiley uh, Coyote and the Roadrunner. And they're always like fighting with one another. And I always used to get really discouraged by watching Wally Coyote, right? Because he's the guy that's always chasing the Roadrunner. And it always ends in him getting blown up, falling off a cliff, or getting hit by a train. And he keeps on chasing him. And I keep on thinking to myself, this is just sad. I know how this ends. Like, why do you keep doing that thing, right? You keep doing the same thing over and over again. I mean, it, it seems like he's really uh, bought in. He's really bought in uh, to the saying, past performance is no guarantee of future results. And he's hoping, you know, maybe that today he doesn't get hit by a train, but he always does. And it's sad to watch over and over again. 
I always kind of wondered why he didn't chase something else or change his target, but he just kept on doing it. And for 16 years, Judah scratched their heads in disbelief and went back to work. You know, I don't know why this is this way. I just guess it's the way it is. I guess we'll just do it again. And to be fair, I, I don't think it's that Judah has a low IQ or that they didn't make some changes. I mean, I'm guessing that they changed all sorts of things. They probably changed the seeds, the fertilizer, the irrigation, and maybe even on the side offered a few sacrifices to Babylonian gods, just in case. But here's the problem. They cared far more about their circumstances than their hearts. They cared more about their crops than their God. And they looked everywhere for solutions to their felt needs. But they failed to look to God for their soul needs. And Judah's biggest problem wasn't empty vats. It was hard hearts that refused to turn from living for their own desires to living for God. And in verse 17, God reveals that bigger issue saying, I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and then with mildew and then with hail. And yet you did not Turn to me, declares the Lord. Did you catch that? God says, I struck you and your work. And just as God cursed the ground that Adam toiled on in Genesis 3 when he sinned against God, here God takes Judah and strikes him yet again and says, you as a people did not turn to me, declares the Lord. He struck the refrigerators and their wallets. And God's not just pilfering their their grapes and their grain. So he's striking at the longings of their hearts that have been arrested and have arrested their attention from God's work. And he says, this is the thing that's got you captivated? Then this is where I'm going to come and meet you. And he's striking the longings of those hearts. He's frustrating their diversion into working for themselves rather than working for God. And he sucked the joy out of working for the trivialities of this world instead of seeking the grand vision of the mission that he has called them to. Do you see it? You've been made for more. And I'll do anything and everything to to let you know that today. You've been made for far more than these things that have sucked your attention dry. And God doesn't strike his children. Friends, hear me. He doesn't strike his children because he likes to hear them cry. It's not our God. That's not the way that God disciplines his kids. He strikes them to bless them with something better. And Judah repented of their sin in Haggai 1. And the only reason Haggai states the past, really, in this text, catch me, is not to rehearse what failures they've been. But what he's trying to do is, he's trying to say, something new is happening here. This isn't the way that it's going to be anymore. And in verse 18 to 19, he tells us the dramatic change in our relationship status is here. Look what he says in verses 18 to 19. These are hopeful words to a hopeless people. He says there, beginning in verse 18, consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. And aren't you glad he doesn't stop there? But from this day on, I will bless you. You see that? It's a new day. Not not like it was in the past. I was striking you, but now I am blessing you. Dramatic change of events between God and his people. All because they repented before him. Do you see that curse reverse? Do you see it? This displays God's 
merciful disposition towards his repentant children. Aren't you glad that God has a merciful disposition towards you and me when we repent and turn to him from our sins? He doesn't look at us and mock us. He doesn't look at us and deride us. He doesn't look at us and say, what failures you are. I can't believe you come yet again. He comes mercifully in his disposition before them. 16 years, today everything changes. What a beautiful declaration by God. What hope. He blesses them. He was patient and restrained in his discipline during their disciplines and their disobedience. Patient and restrained all throughout those 16 years and quickly turns to bless them in their repentance. Do you see that? Patient and disciplined, quick to run to bless them. What a good God. Now, do you see how God is quick to meet us when we repent of our sin? I I think there are a couple of important realities that we see here. First, remember, Judah's biggest work problem wasn't empty wallets, it was hard hearts. That was their biggest problem. It hit them in their wallets, but it was really aimed at their hearts because that's where their hearts were. It didn't matter how often or how hard the Lord struck them, their hearts were impenetrable. You catch it? Could not get through. I was striking you from every direction and you would not pay attention to me. Wouldn't look. You looked out, but never up. No matter how bad things had gotten, they still had just enough money, just enough relationship, just enough whatever not to look to God, right? He didn't take enough away. They still had just enough not to look to the most important place, God Himself. And it took the Holy Spirit to awaken them to their true need. Is that you this morning? Impenetrable? You have just enough to ignore your sin, the the trajectory of sin in your life that you're just not dealing with because you you have just enough not to have it be a big deal. What does God have to take? How hard would God have to strike you or or me to, to get our attention? Do you have just enough in this world not to be concerned with what's next, what happens at death? Just enough. Just enough to to keep your mind busy so that you don't think about ultimate things. It's something that I believe this text begs us to consider this morning. Having just enough might be extremely deadly for your soul. But there's a second thing here. Uh, Notice that God strikes them to bring about change in their lives. Do you see it? It's not... I strike you because I like to see you hurt. No, I strike you because you need to change or greater suffering is coming. He loves them. God strikes His people as children, not enemies. God strikes His kids to bring life, not death. Is the cross not a picture of that? Did He not strike His Son to bring life, not death? And that means that God loves us if we are in Christ as He loves His Son. See, we have been united to God's eternal Son through faith such that the Bible gives us this image of God's love for us that He loves us with the same kind of love that He has for His eternal Son. So that when God looks on you or me, He looks on us as in Christ. That's the favor that God has for you. The love that God has for you, child of God. It's really unfathomable to think about the love of God. We don't really have categories for it. I mean, so he's given us like this father-son thing, which I think is amazing, because I have three little boys. You have Benjamin, Johnny, 
Jack, love those kids. Um, I, when Carrie and I look at them, we are amazed by the love that we have, have for these boys. We think they're wonderful. We know they're sinners, but we just love them. We just can't get enough of these kids. I mean, sometimes on date night it would be nice, but for the most part, these kids are awesome, right? And so uh, last night, we, the other night, we went swimming uh, two nights ago. And we're in this pool, and, you know, they have, like, lifeguards, and they're concerned for me because they're these three little boys holding on for dear life, like I'm a life raft, right? Pinching me, laughing, looks like maybe they're trying to drown me. They won't get off of me, right? Why? Because they love their daddy, and they know their daddy loves them. That's the relationship that I have with them. And what's amazing to me is when I think about the love that I have for those boys, each of them beautifully and wonderfully made about the fact that this is just one small picture of the love that God has for His children. And it doesn't even quite compete or compare. Not even quite. I mean, it's like a thimble in the ocean. Can you imagine? Like That's the affection that your God has for you and for me. What a promise that God gives us. And so, because of that great love, I know that God loves me. And yet, I also know that I discipline my kids because I love them. And the other day, I was disciplining Johnny, and he said, I said, do you know why I'm disciplining you? And he said, no, not this time. And I said, because I don't want you to go to prison. <laughs> and even more importantly, because I want you to grow up to be a great man who loves Jesus and glorifies God. That's very important to me. And did you know that that's what God wants for all of his sons and daughters? That we not be slaves and prisoners to sin, that he free us to righteousness and to himself. And he disciplines us so that he can give us something better than what our sinful fallen hearts tend to want left to themselves. That's what Hebrews 12, 5-11 says. And maybe we've all experienced this to some degree in Christ. Hebrews, author of Hebrews says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? You see that? Don't forget that you are sons and daughters of the living God. Have you forgotten that? Don't forget that. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Don't don't, don't question his love for you. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you were left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. You see it? Discipline, benefit of sonship. But he disciplines us for our, catch this, for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You catch it? It it might be painful in the moment. Sweet fruit is coming. Sweet fruit like you've never tasted before because of God's discipline in your life. It's always for better than what you have. It's to take dead things to living things. So often, I believe we believe what needs to change in our lives is not us, but our circumstances, right? We talk about this all the time. We need to be reminded. When in reality, it's our hearts that need to change. And so often, uh, we say things like, you know, God, if, if you just change my circumstances, you choose the circumstance. 
then I will change my heart. If not for this bad job, I would be more faithful. If not for this difficult relationship, I would be more loving. But God says, I've used your circumstances to change your heart. You catch it? Your your circumstances aren't separate from what God's doing. It's central to what God's doing. So let me ask you this morning. If you trust that God is as good as what He has said, and if you trust that all things to work together for good, as Romans 8.28 promises us, and that God disciplines those He loves, as we just read in Hebrews 12, then just how engaged do you think God is this morning in your financial struggles, in your issues with your spouse, in your sickness? Friends, He has not abandoned you. He is meeting you there. Do not be deceived into thinking that you are alone in your suffering. God is right there working in your heart, shaping you in ways you've never been shaped before, creating in you what will be a rich harvest of fruit in the future. That's the promise that we have here in the gospel. What a promise. And could it be that the greatest change that you need isn't in your circumstances? Your greatest need isn't to change your husband, your job, your child, neighbor, bank account, zip code, car, whatever. I mean, God says real change is possible, but the change that you need most isn't a change in circumstance, it's a change in heart. And so here, I'm not saying it's sinful to pray for a better income or reconciliation with your spouse. God will help us in those things. We need his help. But yet, are you attuned to the change that God is trying to bring about in you in those circumstances? See, the thing that you might think is the cause of your problem just might merely be the occasion of it. But catch this. We need God's Spirit to help us repent, just as Judah did in Haggai 1. It is God's Spirit that led them to repentance. In fact, I believe that our final verses point us forward to a greater hope that we have in Christ. And these are some exciting verses. Look with me in Haggai at the end, in verses 20 to 23, where there's really an amazing image that's given to us here. There it says, The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Same time. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, by servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So here we see Zerubbabel's signet ring. We have to ask, what does this mean? Because it's not spoken of specifically in the New Testament. Well, here Haggai concludes with really an incredible word of hope for Zerubbabel, that king who has no throne. He says, I've got an incredible word of hope for you. Listen close, because this is awesome. Clearly, God has the return of Christ in view here, where the kingdom of God will climatically overthrow every kingdom and nations as the heavens and earth shake together before the mighty unique, unparalleled presence of God. But verse 23 is unique from the image that we got earlier in Haggai in that it begins and ends again with this phrase, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, the all-powerful Lord. 
Begins and ends. I want you to know that this promise that I'm bringing you, it is nestled between two descriptions of myself as all-powerful. So I'm going to tell you I'm all-powerful before I say it and after I say it, just so you know I'm serious and I can actually do what I say I'm going to do. And so he, he says in the middle of that something that was kind of probably unbelievable to Zerubbabel. He says, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. Now this is really fascinating. Let me, let me explain first what a signet ring is, because you might be thinking, I, I, I'm sort of distracted, I don't know what a signet ring is. Uh, signet ring is really just um, a, a ring that a king or dignitary would have that he would use to imprint and wax on a seal of an official letter or document to confirm that that was actually a letter being sent by the king with his authority. And so the kings would have worn that ring either on their hand, and I mean, I've seen some of them, and they were like massive, like, things, like almost like wearing like, you know, an iPod on your finger or something. And then other times, most of them would wear them like on a necklace around their neck. And they had to keep them with them at all times to keep them safe. Because you can imagine if somebody went around sending letters and just sort of put your seal on it and said it was from you, right? Dangerous business. It could get a nation like in trouble, maybe even send them to war. And so here, this king has the signet ring and and God himself, the great king, says, I'm going to make you this. I'm going to make you a signet ring for myself. But I think there's another text here that Zerubbabel would have had in mind when he would have heard these words come from the lips of the Lord, from Haggai. Herbert Wolf, commentator, says Jeremiah 22, 24 is critical here. There, God tells Jehoiakim, a king in Judah before the fall, and as it fell, he tells him that he is going to be pulled off like a signet ring and cast into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. You catch that? God threw his old signet ring away. Like, that's gone. That king is gone. Your future, gone. Tossed away. And not only that, he was sent into exile and received a curse that none of his descendants out of Judah would ever rule on David's throne. I mean, do you see that? This is a promise that's a curse that doesn't just deal with him. It deals with his future and his legacy. But in Matthew 1.12, I believe... It's fascinating that Jeconiah, in other words for Jehoiakim, appears in Christ's genealogy along with Zerubbabel. Do you catch that? Jehoiakim was in the line of David, who was in the line of Jesus, along with Zerubbabel. In other words, God still brought up his king through Judah. He still brought him up through the line of David. And what he's saying here to Zerubbabel is, I am making you a promise that I am not done with you. That I'm going to do something great amongst you. That the Messiah, the Christ, is going to come from your line. The promise to Zerubbabel. What a promise. The guy's name means seed of Babylon. And from the seed of Babylon is going to come the seed of salvation. What a glorious hope. I mean, he would produce the Messiah from the line of David who would one day lead his people out of bondage to sin, death, and the devil to build a new and better temple than Zerubbabel got to build for his people. And that's not all. The New Testament teaches us that the Holy Spirit, catch this, seals you and me as believers as a pledge or down payment guaranteeing our future inheritance. Do you see that? God seals us 
with his spirit, making a promise of the future that is to come in the same way that he set Zerubbabel as a seal for Judah of a future that is to come. So just like Judah received the fulfillment of that promise, the Holy Spirit is going to fulfill the promise of the future inheritance that awaits us. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14 speaks of this. It says, In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Sealed with the Spirit. Do you see that? By God in Christ. Here's what this means for us this morning, I believe. I, I believe that the Holy Spirit that seals us changes us. We too need the Holy Spirit to change us. We've been sealed with the Spirit that will inevitably change you and me. When we put our faith in Christ, when we confess that Jesus is Lord, everything changes. It's a commitment to change. And so this morning what I want to do, I, I don't have time to, to flesh these out, but I want to leave you with just some sort of uh, machine gun-like points about the Holy Spirit that might be good for you to talk about in your community group tonight, or maybe at lunch with uh, a friend or your spouse. So here's some ways that I want you to think about the Holy Spirit and the, the encouragement that He gives us that change is not just possible, it's promised. Now the first is, is going to be for non-Christians. If you're here this morning, you're a non-Christian, you haven't put your faith in Jesus. I want you to know that you need to change your life. Whether you feel it or know it or not, you need to change your life and live for Jesus. There is no greater hope or need in your life, no more important decision in your life this morning than living for Christ. See, Christ died on a cross for your sins so that you might be forgiven before God, innocent and not guilty, so that you might be a child of God, not an enemy of God. He wants to change your identity from the inside out so that you're not defined by the petty accolades of this world and the trophies that you get in this world, but by Christ himself and his work on your behalf. He wants to call you his own, his child. He wants you to be a child of God, and he will change you. So if this morning you have not put your faith in Christ, please talk to me after the service. I want to tell you about what it means to put your faith in Christ for your future. Catch this. It might not mean that your circumstances change. But God will change your heart. And finally, one day, He promises that we will have circumstance changes. God, this morning, wants you to come to Him. And there is great hope that is possible. A future that is incredibly bright. No one should leave this room without putting their faith in Jesus. But there's a second thing uh, that I want to think about for Christians. And this is where, just, just about right here, six things Christians should think about the Holy Spirit and change. First, the Holy Spirit drives you to change your life from being lived for yourself to living for God, obeying Him as Jesus did. The, the Holy Spirit, he, he comes to you and He changes your life, your life trajectory, your life trajectory, the way that you live day in and day out. And he says, I want you to live for me, not this world. Second, the Holy Spirit will cause you to change producing spiritual fruit like love, peace, and joy rather than being a fruitless tree that's cut off. Makes you fruitful. Fruitful. Uh, also, the Holy Spirit will cause you to change from hiding and cultivating sin in your life to killing it. You no longer grow sin, you grow fruit. Now you grow fruit, you don't grow sin. Also, the Holy Spirit changes your future from death to life. The Holy Spirit promises you an unfailing inheritance that nothing in this world can compete with. 
a new future. And the Holy Spirit changes your relationship status with God from enemy to child. God loves you as He loves His one-of-a-kind Son, Jesus. And finally, the seal of the Holy Spirit means that you represent God. You carry the seal of God on you so that you become an image bearer of the great King everywhere you go. And what a calling that He's given for you and me this morning. Brothers and sisters, let's go to God in in prayer this morning, uh, praying that, that God would indeed... Um, would indeed visit us freshly with this Holy Spirit, giving us confidence to live as he's called us to. And then we have a baptism. Uh, in fact, uh, Pastor Mark Sherrod is going to come up and share a little bit about that. And um, it's going to be a little different than usual, but it'll be great because all baptisms are great. So let's go ahead to Lord in prayer. Pray with me.